Welcome to Good Life Project, where we take you behind the scenes for in-depth, candid conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers. Here's your host, Jonathan Fields. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. My guest today is Aviva Ram, who is a, a functional medicine doc who's kind of on the cutting edge of really figuring out and deconstructing health and exploring ideas like food as medicine and all sorts of other heretical things. So awesome to be hanging out with you. <laughs> really nice to be here with you too. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So, have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So, I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So um, I want to learn more about your personal journey a little bit first. Mm -hmm. And then I actually want to like, let's pinpoint some really interesting things that a lot of people have come to me with. And I'm sure like, I'd love mm -hmm. to, I'm also really curious about like, what are some of the big things that you explore and you work with people on every day? But yeah. tell me more about you. So right now, you're hanging out, you're practicing mm -hmm. this kind of fascinating world of functional medicine. First, tell me what functional medicine is, and then I want to take a little bit of a step back with you to find out how you got here. Mm, okay, so functional medicine to me is summed up best by the functional medicine tagline, which is amazing, which is changing the medicine we do and the way we do medicine. And so it's about looking at connectivity instead of separation. So for example, I'll give you a, a true story from my practice. I have a little girl in my practice who's five. She had a fever a year ago. Normal pediatric recommendations from the pediatrician put the baby on around the clock ibuprofen and Tylenol and fever passed, cold passed, all went fine. But about a month later, the five-year-old ended up with horrible gastritis. She had inflammation in her stomach, really sick, stomach pain all the time, had to be put on this medicine called Prilosec, which is one of the 
most popularly prescribed right, medications yeah, yeah, now. It's even, yeah, yeah, it's even prescribed for like six-week-old babies for reflux, which may be appropriate sometimes. Right, okay. But anyway, so my little patient, cutie girl, fast forward another month, ends up with joint swelling in her knuckles, her wrists, her knees. She basically had arthritis. And the pediatrician said, well, let's just keep her on the stomach medication and then we'll get to treating the joint problem mm -hmm. later as if it was like true, true, true and unrelated, yeah. right? Whereas in my worldview and how we see things in functional medicine, this is actually really connected and both are really treatable. So I see kids like this frequently and some of them end up on medications like methotrexate, some pretty intense immunosuppressive medications that have their big guns with big consequences. Huh. Whereas what I did with this little girl was just talk with mom about diet some simple herbal medicines to, you know, just to heal her gut, getting her off this medication that was like suppressing stuff going on in her body. And mm. voila, a few months later, she's got no joint swelling confirmed by the rheumatologist and pediatrician, no stomach ache. She's completely off the medication. So it's, it's looking at that connectivity of systems. And then it's also really looking at the whole person. Mm. So it's all about and for little kids, usually life is pretty good. You know, sometimes yeah. they're stressed, but sometimes there isn't. Like I've got another little kid in the practice who's really struggling with some stuff and mom and dad are going through a big time relationship kind of mm. debacle and divorce. And sometimes these things play out in people's lives. Yeah. So we, we kind of take like a bottom up and a top down view of like looking at how your life affects your health, how your effects, health affects your life and right. all the pieces in between. So it's, it's less like treat the symptom on a pinpoint level and it's more okay what's going on systemically that may be yes. producing all of these symptoms and is there some way to sort of like function on that exactly level? and it's also like we do treat symptoms because we want people to be comfortable right. while they're getting yeah. well and then there's this whole piece of like looking at the person in the context of their environment and in their world right so people are hearing a lot about probiotics and the microbiome these mm. days so we look at that and we take a really big picture view like are you getting food that's got that's organic that has an opportunity for like organisms to grow it's right. really like looking at the whole life it's really fun yeah no it sounds amazing and it sounds yeah. also i mean it sounds like there's some overlap also um at one point <laughs> i looked at doing like so many different things about that, but at one point i was sort of like going down the the Chinese medicine and yeah. acupuncture, rat and herbalist rabbit hole, and I did, I did a whole bunch of research on the field. And one of the things that was appealing to me was that, you know, if you go to somebody like that, um, they'll ask you what your symptoms are. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of like the the diagnostic process is not so much symptoms based. Mm -hmm. It's really they just look at the big like the energetic systems, meridians, yes. stuff, and they're looking for the systemic things, and they just assume that if they treat the systemic problems the symptoms are going to re resolve themselves. Absolutely. So it's, it's like there's an interesting overlay there, I think, to yeah, a certain extent. Definitely. In Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, they get really cool on other aspects, too, that functional medicine sort of looks at, but it's more the individual functional medicine doctor. Like I look at it because my background is herbal medicine, so that right. includes some training in Chinese medicine, um, but actually looking, like you said, at the energetics of the person. So a lot of patients, they'll come in, like, I tried every diet, you know, I tried vegan, I tried this, I tried that, and... I just can't lose weight or I can't clear up whatever my symptoms are. But sometimes it's, you have to look at the energetic piece. Like maybe that morning shake is too damp for that person. Hmm. They need something more warming in the morning. Right? Right. Like they need some ginger tea, not a cold 
yes. smoothies. Oh. Which is definitely not what I, would, what I would assume most functional medicine docs would be like going to that place also. I mean, right, which yeah, is kind of that's how definitely I got... the Chinese medicine influence yeah. moving in there. Exactly. It's sort of how I got brought into functional medicine. It was a big open invitation. So my background is midwifery and herbal medicine. And then I went to med school when I came out, there were a bunch of offers from functional medicine practices. I think they really saw some gem also in what I was doing and had to bring into it, which was that botanical medicine piece, kind of a woman-centered approach, and then this energetic piece. So let's talk about this since you just brought it up, the woman-centered approach. Mm -hmm. Take me deeper. What is it and how is it different and why why does it matter? Why would people want that? Yeah. So... I think the context of a woman-centered approach really came out of a time that's a little bit different than now. Like there weren't as many cool guys like you, right? Yeah. Who are clearly just I don't know, in touch with that. their feminine. I don't know if I like qualify it in the way under like the cool label, but, but it's it was sort of the woman-centered door, approach has <laughs> you know it's sort of a rebound of a very sort of patriarchal model of medicine, which is don't worry, honey, I'll take care of that symptom for you. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. You know, that that ran through everything from like obstetrics to general general mm-hmm. medicine. And a woman-centered approach, really, it can be practiced by anyone. You don't have to be a woman. It's really a patient-centered. It's a listening-centered. It's, it's about connection. Mm-hmm. You know, not just tell me what your symptoms are and let me write a prescription for you, but I want to hear who you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you push the pad and the pen away or you push the computer away and you like sit back and listen because you really want to know because there's healing and connection right there's healing that comes from what some people call placebo but i think that there's something else going on there Mm, Um, i know you you talk about somewhere in in some of your work or a video you have about emotional contagion yeah and i think emotional contagion that that connection that heart-centered feeling that a, a physician can have which has been more associated with sort of a womanly kind of way of connecting um, is where that woman-centered approach comes from. But it's really just about human connection and hearing the story, listening for the clues of the health problem in the story um, or the clues of the imbalance in the life that may lead to certain food choices, for example, or not sleeping well, or any number of things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you brought up emotional contagion. Um, there, there's another really kind of psychological effect that fascinates me called the Pygmalion effect. Mm, tell me. And, um, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but my understanding is that Pygmalion effect is essentially, um, well, here's a case study to sort of like the, the example that I was, I was taught to, to illuminate. So researchers went into a classroom, mm-hmm. you know, teachers, little kids, and they basically they test all the little kids then they tell the teachers, listen, like these, whatever number, X number of kids, these five kids tested off the charge genius. Oh, I've heard this, yes. Right, but you can't tell them and you can't right. treat them differently. Mm-hmm. Right, and then they actually track the behavior and they have the cameras. And, and then at the end of the season, and then in the semester, they tested all the kids again mm-hmm. and these five kids test off the charge mm-hmm. and you're like, smart. And, but, but, you know, like the big reveal is that the kids were completely like everybody else before mm-hmm. they did that. Mm-hmm. And they realized the teachers... Like, would treat the kids, you know, like a hundred different ways, just slightly differently mm. in ways that would enable them to actually really thrive and mm-hmm. flourish on a level that the other kids didn't. And the teachers weren't even aware of mm-hmm. this. And I wonder if that's part of what happens in medicine, that when you have sort of, um, that when you have some sort of, you know, like health and healing professional, um, and they, you know, they, they think that somebody's exceptional or in their mind, they're like, this person 
is going to beat this. They're going to get through mm-hmm. it. They're going, mm-hmm. they're curable. They're, they're yes. going to, that, um, they end up transmitting that in, you know, like a hundred different ways that they don't even realize they're transmitted mm-hmm. to a patient. And in some way the patient receives that and activates their immune system or whatever it may be to actually change the, um, the healing outcome. Absolutely. I feel like uh, one of the things you asked, kind of what I'm exploring, what I'm playing yeah. with a little bit right now is um, this connection between my work as a midwife and my work as a physician, right? So when you midwife someone, labor is not always easy. Stuff, Life stuff comes up in pregnancy, mm. sort of how we live and our, our backstory can impact how we birth. And um, and, and there's a lot of need for support. And so a lot of what I did as a midwife was hold that space where I believed in the other person, even when their belief in themselves was faltering. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, I, I can see this happening for you, and I'm going to be here with you no matter what. So there was like relationship, connection, someone holding space, and then transmitting that. I, I believe in you. It was interesting. Recently, I had a patient who came in and She's been sick for a lot of her life. And um, I asked her, um, so what does is, what is being well look like to you? Mm. And she just kind of diverted. She was like, right back to talking about her symptoms, right? Mm. And like, why is this happening to me? So I reiterated. I was like, so what does being well look like yeah. to you? And she, she had no idea what she I was... She couldn't even like conceive it. She yeah. couldn't. Is there, there, there's got to be this really interesting dynamic. Maybe I'm just totally making this up. Where it's like you want to hold this hope. You want to project it. You want to allow somebody to believe that after you know, like living with illness, with pain, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, for decades, maybe the, as, as far back as they can remember, mm-hmm. they can't remember health, there's hope. Yeah. Right? At the same time, um, is there a risk of setting somebody else, someone up yeah. with false hope? This is a um, brilliant question. Yeah, like, and how do you work through that? Yeah, so I'm a sort of an incredible pragmatist, and I really have honest conversations with, with people about that. And I think that's what that question is. What does wellness mean to you? Because mm. if somebody says to me, I've had 10 out of 10 pain my whole life. And it started when I had a skiing accident and I had eight fractured vertebrae and now they're fused. And every time the weather is damp, I'm like, mm. okay, so what can you live with? And if they say to me, well, I want zero out of 10, I'm like, okay, that's probably not realistic. Yeah. What can you live with? And, and feel good about that and then let's set a realistic goal and i'll work with them to set a realistic goal but then there's also that piece that health is more than just sort of as the world health organization says like the absence of illness right Right, there's there's also how we live our lives and how we adjust and how we cope and i think sometimes what happens is and this can happen with a lot of things right it can happen with a job that you're not happy with or a relationship that you're in and you're stuck in we get in these mindsets where not only do we have the physical situation that we're dealing with, but then we have our self-talk about it. And sometimes mm, that negative absolutely. self-talk it just amplifies right. it. So it's like you can have pain and watch a totally hilarious movie, and for that 90 minutes, you forget about your pain. Right. So it's sometimes so it's an attitude shift yeah. that I help patients, and that's that's sometimes the healing. It's going from like, why is this happening to me, to okay this is happening, this kind of sucks, right? This really, or it really sucks, yeah. and I have to adjust to this. How am I going to yeah. find the coping skills? It's interesting, because I went through like a, that whole process. I have tinnitus. Mm. Oh, Came gosh, out of nowhere like five years ago, four years ago. 
And you know, like 50 million people have it. Big whoop. 17 million people. I know all stats now after going nuts on it. It's amazing what you learn when you have something, right? Right. And then two million people basically their lives are. They'll tell you their lives are largely destroyed because they have it on level. Oh yeah, I had one patient who tried to kill himself several times. And when you go on, when you get it, you start to look online. Like Mm. don't don't ever do that. Yeah. (laughs) And there's there's still we know we don't know why. I have it, but it's here mm-hmm. long enough so that we assume it's here for life. So in the beginning, I was one of those people where it was really not good. And, uh, and I wasn't sleeping, and it was like brutal, brutal, and it creates this horrible spiral. And, and I was tra- tried everything, all the like, cures, all of this and that, yeah. all the tests to make sure this. And, um, and it got to a point where, where I was, it was a really dark place. And, um, and I kind of said to myself, there was this moment where I was like, all right, if this is me for life, mm-hmm. then what? Mm-hmm. You know, so r- rather than focusing every waking hour on trying to make the sound go away, distract myself from it, you know, like every possible device, you know, like if this is just it, like how do I be okay? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was a moment where a lot of things changed. You know, and it wasn't that it went away; it wasn't that yeah. I was easily okay. But that was a moment that I changed my energy, being like, "All right, let's work on this basic assumption." I'm open to the fact that maybe someday something comes along that makes it go away. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, it's like a sort of like the Buddhist approach. It's like, okay, you know, if this is my reality, how do I get myself most okay with that? Yes. Um, and so, and then I started to, that had moved me into whole exploration of, mm-hmm. of mindfulness and tinnitus and which I, I sort of developed my own approach through like that practice and mm-hmm. it was transformative for me and now I'm pretty fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that same place of saying, like, I had to get to a point of absolute surrender. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and also realizing that, you know, okay, the sound in my head is not going to do anything to me. It's not the sound which is mm-hmm. causing the distress. It's my response to the sound. Yes. You know, this can be there for life and have no effect. Yes. It's the, and it's the same thing you were talking about with disease or pain. It's pain especially. And that's where I made the association mm-hmm. because I started reading that, that um, like, pain... Is there's such a strong psychological element to the way you experience pain mm-hmm. that a lot of the anxiety that you build on top of it is what makes you feel like there's so much more pain. Absolutely. So I was saying to myself, well, could the anxiety that I'm building on top of it make it feel like the sound in my head is that much louder when it really isn't? Mm-hmm. It's just I'm not processing mm-hmm. it as well. And that created like a whole new journey for me. But I had to hit that moment. What um, brought you to that moment? Do you have a sense of like what it was that allowed you to make the shift? Yeah, I hit a point where I was basically like, if this doesn't change, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and, and because I, you know, sort of like reasonably studied in Eastern traditions, um, I also kind of like started to really think about those things. And, and then again, probably I started to really also remember, okay, there is, there's an interesting body of work on meditation and mindfulness practice and the experience of pain. Mm. I was like, could this work on, on Caninus also? Mm. And, and in fact, so I started looking for uh, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive uh, therapists who specialize in tinnitus. Not an easy find, by the way. <laughs> but very specific. Very specific. Mm-hmm. And I found one guy. Um, he didn't specialize in it, but he had it. And, um, and he had sort of like, you know, worked a bit on himself. And I went in and I'm like, could mm-hmm. this work? And he's like, you could. Mm-hmm. It wasn't entirely convincing, but you know, it gave me hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it gave me hope. And I'm like, okay, let me start to play with this. And I had enough of a tradition in understanding the practice and how to build it that I started to really just work with it. It was terrifying in the beginning. Because mm-hmm. um, the classical instruction is focus on your breath. But then if that thing keeps coming back to you, make that the focus of your practice, mm-hmm. which means I have to focus on the sound. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I live and breathe to not hear. 
You have like an ohm in your head right, all basically. the time. Um, so, you know, it was it, it was a really interesting process, you wow. know, and it's still for me to practice. You know, mm-hmm. it is a lifelong practice, mm-hmm. and and I will, like, my practice is there not just because it makes me okay. And mm-hmm. now it's, and you were saying, you know, like, definition of health used to be like you know the absence of disease, mm-hmm. and for me it was that was stage one. Yes. But then what you find is that this practice then takes you from the absence of disease, or at least being okay with whatever it is, to then like then the practice starts to add your ability to flourish mm-hmm. on a whole yes. different level. So it actually really just changes the way you exist, the way you relate to people. Um, mm. And in some way, I think going through something like that, it makes you more aware of others' yes. um, sensitivity, more compassionate, I think. Well, when you have something like tinnitus, it's not an obvious thing, right? So to everyone else, you look fine. Right. It's and not that's like part you're of the in a wheelchair part of it. or Nobody can crutches. see or yes. hear what's in your head. Yes. And, you know, and for those who are listening or, or viewing, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Literally, it's it's this umbrella categorization for a wide variety of sounds that mm-hmm. either through a loss of hearing or brain signals, nobody really knows, mm-hmm. um, your brain starts to generate sounds from the inside out that you hear 24-7. Yeah. And for some people, they're totally fine. They habituate. For some people, it's brutal. For me, mm-hmm. I was in the brutal category. Yeah. So it's... I'm sorry. Um, I'm glad you're... Yeah. I'm actually like really, really okay yeah. with it now. So, yeah. um, but anyway, it's, it's this interesting like... balance of, of like surrender and hope. And mm-hmm. sometimes... It's the surrender that moves you from hoping for one thing mm-hmm. into doing the work to create something else, mm-hmm. which is what you really need at that yes. given point in time. And some of my patients, they come to me with simple, you know, they just want their digestion fixed. Yeah. They don't want to take a deep dive and maybe there's not a reason to. And then we like, we do the probiotics and yeah. the digestive enzymes. But for a lot of people, and especially if they have a chronic illness that they've lived with for a long time, I, I like to think about it, kind of, kind of playing with this term transformational healing, mm. you know, that you can shift your health and shift your life. And sometimes you can shift your life and shift your health. And mm. then it's, it's yeah. all connected. It's all one it's big thing. Fun. Yeah. 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 Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time, only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals, or just click the link in the show notes. 
Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn Ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So you you brought up um, a couple things I want to kind of circle Mm -hmm. back to. Um, because it, they're really like buzzy words these days, mm-hmm. and they seem to hold some really interesting answers. And you know, so this is the Good Life Project. So yeah. part of what we explore is like, what are some of the pieces of the puzzle? And health is a huge one, mm-hmm. you know. So, and it seems like there's some major unlockies that are being explored on a really deep level, and probably like functional medicine is to a certain extent leading the charge. And one of the terms mm-hmm. you brought up earlier was a gut biome, and then you mentioned probiotics yes, too. Yes, yes, Tell me a little bit about what this is and what's going on in that space right now. Yeah, so the gut biome is really fun and it's emerging, and part of why I love it, because it, it connects me full circle to kind of how I started out with health and medicine, which was connecting around food, politics, organic farming, mm. Um, and it's kind of... So you were a hippie kid. <laughs> I, was, I, I was actually showing some pictures to our nurse practitioner recently on a plane trip, and she actually said, I've never seen anybody that hippie, actually. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm actually a housing project kid. So I grew up in a New York City housing project. Wait, so you were project. like a hippie housing project kid? I'm the housing project kid. I can be like all about it, but... Then I, uh, I went to college really young when I was 15. And wait, wait, wait. Okay, we had that happen. Okay, so grew up in this housing project. Um, are you from New York? Yeah. Yeah, so for people who don't know New York, I went to this high school called Bronx High School of Science, which right. is like this Fantastic uber school, competitive, right. right? You test in, it's free. If you get in, you go. And it was like this two-hour commute every day from my projects in Flushing, Queens. Yeah. This is like a legit project. So my husband used to always, before he ever visited, he used to say like, oh, you're just trying to identify, you know? And I was like, okay, we're going to go. And we drove in the neighborhood and 
his and my kids' jaws just dropped. They were like, mom, my kids were like, mom, you grew up in the hood. (laughs) So I was in this environment. It was pretty rough. Like all the kids on my floor literally ended up in juvie or pregnant or like one died of HIV. So I was this sort of outlier. Talk about the Pygmalion effect, right? I was an outlier in a way in that I was like the science fair kid. I won the science fairs. I won the spelling bees. Mm -hmm. And so in not really so much Pygmalion, like the teachers, I think, loved it, having a kid that wanted to learn. And so I got fostered along in sort of that Pygmalion way where they saw me. I was Eliza Doolittle, um, do a lot, really. Uh But um, so they kind of nurtured me along. I got into science, was at science. And then my first year there, I was like, I really want to be a doctor. And I was doing this heavy commute. I was actually on the debate team. I was like this champion debater at Bronx Science, which was a big deal. Commuting back and forth. And I, I, I keep yeah. stopping you, but there's so many things. So many people never reach a moment where they're like, I really want to be this. Yeah. And at 16, you're like, boom. Yeah, yeah I was 14, actually. 14. Yeah, I was 14. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor, and I loved writing. So I was like, doctor writing, doctor writing. And um, so I wrote this letter to Johns Hopkins University medical school and said, would you be willing to take me early? And they wrote me back this really, I thought they would ignore me, but they wrote me back this really nice letter. I wish I had it, but I don't. And they said, you're a little young for our medical school and you have to go to college first, (laughs) but here's this great school in Western Massachusetts that takes smart kids. And it was this early college called Simon's Rock. Mm -hmm, I got a scholarship. I went and within about Three months, I was a hippie kid, really hippie kid. Uh-huh. Like I actually grew dreadlocks, and like <laughs> I was, I was in the whole thing. But this was 1981, so it was way before there was even something called alternative medicine. Right. Yeah. So I went there for a year. Wanted to stick. I just got this passion for learning about plants, and um, I was like learning about factory farming. So I mm. went vegetarian. So it's not just medicine at this point. It's just it's like deep life. dive into environment yes. and all, how everything connects. Exactly. Yeah. So one thing led to another, like learning about food politics led me into learning about health politics and the history of medicine. And the part that really kind of stoked me was the history of medicine and women and midwifery. And mm. it was fascinating. And so I just took a left turn really off this path to, you know, Doogie Hauserdom or something mm-hmm. like that and moved to Boston, found a midwife who would apprentice me. She was this midwife working in Roxbury, Massachusetts, which was like kind of like the ghetto experience of Boston. Here I was this like this white girl taking the, you know, the train to these like Rasta Muslim homes, studying midwifery. It was, it was like a pretty radical immersion in mm-hmm. so many things, like how other people live what's what what are your parents thinking about like right now it's like we've got this we've got yeah. a prodigy brilliant kid he's going to be a doctor they go and then you end up in sort of like you know a, a challenged neighborhood yeah um in midwifery right yeah so i'm just curious because i'm like i'm always processing like okay how do people handle like the external support systems and the potential judgment when they're sort of along this path yeah, so my family, like my, my parents were totally disconnected from each other. My dad really was not in my life at all. Mm. And, you know, my mom was interesting. Um, she kind of um, rebelled and left her her childhood home not as early as I did. And part of me leaving home was the commute, but also like living with a single mom in a housing project environment. There was a lot of 
tension. It was pretty fraught. Mm. So in some ways, she was probably too hands-off, which wasn't the best thing because there was sort of no guidance and no supervision. But on the other hand, it was like, I just went exploring. And I, nice. you know, I kept in touch with her. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time whose parents lived. They, his dad is like one of the most famous philosophers living still mm-hmm. in the world and the mom of the philosopher. And they had been really alternative. So they kind of let me stay at their house. Mm. And then I, I got a job and I was doing beadwork and selling it in Harvard Square for real, for real, paying for my midwifery books and my uh-huh. herbal medicine books. And, you know, one thing just led to another. And I ended up with this amazing life as a midwife and herbalist kind of before those things were on the map and teaching my clients to eat organic and raise their kids healthy. And it was amazing. Mm. So where, where, what trim? So that was kind of the journey. Yeah. No, I was right. Yeah. I, I know I was asking about gut biome. So yeah. So the gut biome piece is really a powerful kind of revelation, I think in modern medicine, because the question is really, are we the home for all these microorganisms that are living in our gut or, or, are they the home? Are like we sheltering them? You know, like who, who's in charge here? Mm. And really, um, what it is, is that we now know that we're inhabited by a bazillion. We actually don't really know how many, but multiple millions of various microorganisms that have innate intelligence to the point where, for example, a colony of one kind of organisms can recognize that there's a dominant colony of another kind of organisms that might use up all the food. So they go into a more dormant state. They don't proliferate as much. We know that the microbiome in our gut, so the microbiome is sort of the term that encompasses sort of almost like the whole of all the different organisms almost functioning like an organ or a community within us. And they're part of us. They're not really separate from us. We're just cohabitating our our bodies, right, and our planet. And what's really fascinating is we know that they do so many things. For example, there have been studies looking at mental health and microflora. So the kinds of gut that one person have, gut flora that one person have, are going to be different than another person. And depending on what you have in your gut, it may make you more anxious or more depressed, or they may utilize your food and create different gases that affect your mental health. Or, um, for example, two different people can have an identical diet, an identical, they can be twins. They can be identical twins with the same diet, the same exercise, but one, let's say, went to Mexico and got some kind of like Montezuma's revenge, came back with a disrupted gut flora, and now they're gaining all this weight on the exact same sort of caloric intake and expenditure. Just because just the flora they have in their different gut is different. Flora. Yeah. yeah. So it's really fascinating. Um, another thing that the gut flora are really important for is metabolizing estrogen. So for women's health problems, a lot of things like PMS and fibroids and fertility problems, and they call polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is sort of like a combination of diabetes and hormone problems, um, all have, the microflora all has a role in it. Right. So again, and it seems like there's, I keep hearing about it all over the place. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And having had some exposure to to, the functional medicine um, world for probably going on 20 years now, like the very, very earliest Mm -hmm. days, um, it, the term is not new, or no. maybe microbiome is a relatively newer term, but like, you know, really focusing a lot on gut and gut flora. And, yeah. um, so it's kind of interesting because for you guys, it's almost like, 
yes, now the world is like, finally, like, you know, like, the microbiome is sexy. Yes, Like, exactly. everybody wants to know yes, that. Yes, your gut and, like, and your poop is sexy. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's so fascinating, too, because the things that you just said was connected to, I think for um, a lot of people would be counterintuitive. Okay, we get that maybe it helps in digestion and, yeah. and but, you know, like, okay, critters in your intestine make you either anxious or OCD or depressed or mm-hmm. calm or relaxed mm-hmm. or serene or able to handle stress better. So, yes. like, there's a direct tie-in between the things that are living in your intestine and your state of mind. Yes, and between your state of mind and the things that are living in your intestine. So, for example, if you have a lot more stress, then you're you're not getting as good gut um, as good b- blood flow to your gut lining, mm. and so that affects the quality of what's in there, and that affects the quality of the food uh, or the pH, for example, of that environment. So that can shift what's growing in there. If you're stressed and not making the best food choices, for example, that can also affect because a lot of sugar feeds certain gut bugs more than it feeds others, and that can throw things out of balance. So it goes round and round. And you know what I love about it, too, is that there's so much more consciousness about food and organics Mm. and the environment, right? And a big piece of my evolution and what I believe in as a physician and a healer is that what happens in our communities, what happens on our planet, what happens to our soil. It affects us. We affect it. And so there's so many parallels, right? When we think about um, agriculture and we think about organic agriculture and we think about building a healthy compost pile to feed the soil or putting good nutrients in the soil and like the plants flourish compared to poor agricultural practices like growing one food in the same field year after year, pouring on pesticides and depleting the soil, the exact same things happen in our body. So if Mm. we eat good quality food, we actually build, there's literally like a soil base in the intestines that this microflora lives on and Mm -hmm. thrives on. And then the more variety of foods that we eat, of healthy foods that we eat, the more variety of good gut flora we have. And then kind of the parallel to the pesticides is the more antibiotics we take, which are like so overused. It's Mm, actually considered antibiotic resistance. It's like this major global crisis, yet we just keep pouring them on and they're affecting us and they're affecting the environment. So, Can you, I mean, and I guess it's such a complex ecosystem. Um, Where do you even start to... Like, figure it out. I mean, it's, it yeah. seems like also we're in such, like, the early stages of really understanding what's happening there. Absolutely. But, um, well, I guess maybe let me back up and mm-hmm. even question more. So, you know, like, in theory, if you're coming out of, like, when you're first born, you're coming out of your mother relatively sterile. Yeah. Um, where does that or bacteria not. come from? Yeah. Like, so. initially, like, how does, how does the bacteria populate the microbiome yeah. in the can beginning? Can we say vagina? You can, okay. yes. So... <laughs> So we're really not sterile when we come out. We shouldn't be sterile when we come out. So we come out and, you know, our our faces and our heads are coming all smushy through our mom's vagina and we get bacteria up our nose and in our mouth. It sounds really gross, but it's true. And so we're coming out of this very not sterile environment and we're getting colonized as we come out. So that's like the initial colonization. It is the initial colonization. And then if we breastfeed, this is one of the coolest things to me. So it used to be thought even just a decade ago or so that breast milk was basically sterile. It was just protein and uh, fats and, and nutrients and antibodies. But now we know that not only is breast milk teeming with microorganisms, but every mom's microorganisms are different. And not only that, they adjust 
to her baby's needs. Hmm. So the microorganisms of a breastfeeding mom who has a premature baby, for example, will adapt based on that interaction between the baby's mouth, the baby's flora, and the mom's milk. It's crazy. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, there's really new research, um, but it's, it's really fascinating. I, I, I get so, It's so fun to get to do something where I'm just kind of geeked out right. all the time, like this wonder and fascination, and then I get to use it and, and make a difference with it. So we're not sterile. And part of what we're seeing is that like right now in the United States, we have over a 34% C-section rate. So one in three babies is born by C-section. Every C for every C-section, just for protecting mom from infection because it's major abdominal surgery, mom gets an antibiotic, which means mom's getting it, Into the baby's, getting, baby's it. getting it. And then that affects mom's breast milk too. So not only is baby getting a dose, but mom's getting a dose. So we know that babies born by, by C-section, for example, are more likely to develop eczema and asthma. And we know that if they're treated with a probiotic at birth, they're actually less likely to develop that problem. Mm. But interestingly, um, we also know that babies born by C-section, for example, later are more likely to develop things like inflammatory bowel disease, which is totally related to the gut flora, mm -hmm. and even obesity, which is also related to the gut flora. So, you know, for me, the work that I still do, I'm, I'm not practicing as a midwife anymore, but as a physician and a functional medicine doctor is partly around this advocacy of how do we help more women who can birth naturally, birth vaginally, because it really does have an impact on this next generation. Right. And does that mean also that, um, well, I guess of course it means this, but um, that, that a mom, um, what they're eating throughout pregnancy is going to have a pretty substantial impact on their child's, their newborn's It definitely flora. can, absolutely. The gut flora, immunologic changes that happen. Right. There's even some suggestion that moms, that baby's taste preferences are formed in mm. the womb by just chemicals from the foods that baby gets in on their palate. Right. So definitely. Yes. So do dads play a role in this at all? <laughs> yeah, they do. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had a kid come into the practice just this, just recently and the baby's four months old and has pretty severe eczema. And mom has no symptoms at all, but dad, when they conceived the baby, was at the worst flare of digestive problems and eczema he'd ever had in his mm. life. So we were talking about it. And we definitely know that, you know, DNA affects baby from, from dad and from mom. So we know things mm. like smoking and, um, you know, dad's kind of whole life leading up to getting to mom getting pregnant um, yeah. can definitely have an impact. And, and I guess also, you know, like sort of like um, you know, epigenetics these days. Yeah. Another um, big term, isn't right, it? Huge. Yeah. I guess like that's the other, like such a big buzzword. Yeah. And that, you know, the last thing that I saw, and I'm curious whether you know whether this is true or not, was someone was saying that, you know, so, so if you accept the basic argument that your genes are not your fate, but the, the state of your genes yeah. are your fate, and that you actually have a, a significant amount of control over whether certain genes are turned on or turned off and they become yes. expressed and cause all sorts of different things from disease to flourishing. Um, and that a lot of, the, whether it's turned off or turned off is, is lifestyle choices. It is. Um, and that it's, it's, it's the last thing that I'm reading is like, is that it's heritable. Like the state, whether it's turned on or turned off is actually then passed on generations. Is it that is. valid? So, so it's interesting. I had a patient the other day who said, I know I'm always going to be fat. My mom was fat. My grandmother was fat. And she said, it's just in my genes. So we started talking about this and we started talking about it's not just the genes that are inherited. It's the food choices. It's the lifestyle choices, right? So 
if mom and grandma ate certain foods, you probably grew up eating those foods. So those genes actually got turned on from the very beginning. Right. And that turned on state is actually inherited. It can't. Yes, absolutely. And right. we know that that can start in pregnancy, whether mom gets enough folic acid, for example, and the proper kinds, certain foods that the moms get. But I also want to be careful. It's so easy to start um, uh, feeling super guilty or like for people right, to feel really pressured. It's like, okay, like these things I did 10 years ago yeah. are now going to affect two generations from now. Right. Like, well, it's interesting. Like some of the studies recently that have been coming out looking at kids and autism, because the rate has just gone up to one in 68 kids is oh now considered on the spectrum. Huge, big report that just came out. And one of the considerations about what might be causing this has nothing to do with mom and baby, but actually grandmom. So did grandmom smoke? And how did that affect the eggs that I got? Because my, as a woman, right, your eggs are formed and are fully there when you're in your own mom. So Mm. basically my eggs were already there when I was in my mom. And so what, so what my grandma did affected my mom, affected me. And so we're looking at generations of, so I want to be careful that people, I want, I want my patients, I want people who are listening to feel like, yes, I can totally transform my life. But then there's also some, there's almost an act, an aspect, if we're really serious about this, of activism that has to come in because there's just a ton of stuff in the environment that is doing this to us that we're not doing to right. ourselves. So I, I mean, it's like you can't take a fatalist approach where it's right. like, okay, we have two generations that have given me this, not just the gene, but the turned on state for, mm-hmm. you know, like, which increases my, you know, like the propensity for obesity or something like that. Like, I, then the, uh, the, like the big lingering question is like, can I do something? Mm-hmm. Is there a behavior, is there lifestyle changes or nutrition, is there something I can do to change that state or to turn yes. it off or whatever it may yes. be? Or is that just, it is what it is? You know, I, I, I figure it this way. We're just figuring this out now, right? Yeah. Like we didn't even know genes existed until no, like 1960. Right. Like, right, everything is changing all the time, and there are so many reasons to have good lifestyle choices. It makes us feel good. It's good, healthy for the environment. You know, it's just there's so many reasons that doing it in a sort of goal-oriented way, the evidence may change in 10 years. So mm-hmm. do it because it feels good, and do it because you want to. And I, I just can. I tell my patients all the time, like. Let's look at this as a great experiment. Mm. You know, this is a great experiment in, in doing everything we can to optimize your ability to thrive and yeah. be vital. And um, how do I patients, think there's a t- how do they deal with that? Because because they're gonna want to hear no, just tell me it's gonna be okay. Like tell me I can like do this. I think they love it. Okay you know, I really okay. like I, I had a, a patient who wrote me an email recently, and he's struggled with some pretty serious depression and um, very intense fear of death for about 10 years. And he said, you know, nobody's really ever listened before, like really listened. And then kind of just given me a ray of hope that I wasn't alone in this, that you're not like selling me a bill of goods. Like I can actually trust what you're saying because you're right here with me. It was this beautiful email, but it was like, okay, we're in this together. We're going to experiment. You're going to get, you're going to get some better. And let's kind of see where this goes together. I think people get, they get excited about it. Yeah. And there's a powerful word again, hope. (laughs) Yeah. And and I see so many people get better. Like sometimes I'm at work and I'm just, I, I really, I've actually asked patients, I've actually said to people like, are you really that much better? Or are you just telling me that because you think I want to hear it? And like, and I'll say to my patients, like, don't ever BS me. 
this is your time, you're paying to be here, all I ever want to hear is the truth. Like, if it's not working for you, if this diet, lifestyle, plan, too many supplements, whatever it is, tell me, because it's got to work for you. And they're like, no, I'm really, I'm not having migraines that I've had for 15 years, or like, I have regular digestion now, or... I, my anxiety's gone, and I'm off of these medications that I've been on for 15 years. I'm like, mm. I, I still get, like, really? Really? Because right. all the stuff I learned in medical school that can't be changed or altered, so much of it can. Mm. I don't always know the why. I don't always know what things could be measured in a study. I don't know how much of it is instilling hope and how much of it's the probiotic or the magnesium or the, you know, what it is. But yeah. Or maybe it's just all together. You I know, think There's it is. some sort of just... Gestalt. Symbiotic thing yes. that goes on. It's interesting you're telling about, um, like, it, are, is it really legit? I, um, a friend of mine's a chiropractor, uh-huh. but he's much more than a chiropractor. And it's like just multimodal. And, um, and, and he'll ask you, like, after he treats you, like, after a session, he'll be like, okay, do this. And how much better is it? Uh, it's, it's better. And he's like, give me a percentage. Uh-huh. And you're like, eh, it's this percentage better. And I'm like, why are you asking that? He's like, because anything less than 20%, you're just trying to please me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's yeah. like, I know that. So he's like, anything less than that, I just write it off as mm-hmm. it's not real. Yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> I the think it's a similar thing probably. It is. The flip side is really interesting too. Like we do these medical symptom questionnaires. Mm-hmm. And I saw this when I was in conventional practice too, where we had these depression questionnaires that were kind of like mandated for our clinic. And sometimes people get so used to being sick for so long that they don't realize they're getting better until you kind of lay it out and and you're like, wow, okay, so you used to have migraines every day and now you're having them only once every three weeks. And they're like, oh, yeah. Or like, wow, I used to not have a bowel move. Bowel move is like a big deal for people, right? Like I used to not have one except every three days and now I'm going once or twice a day. And and you point it out and they're like, wow, I actually am feeling better, mm. but they got stuck in a, a role because it sometimes certain roles become part of a way of life, and they also become ways that other people around us right. and start you, to relate to, be, you to you us. You define yourself by exactly. sort of like, right, and you define those relationships, and people yeah. define you by how you've been for you. Mm-hmm. So a big piece of what happens in functional medicine, ideally, in good medicine, ideally, is creating a partnership, mm. right? It's not, and that's, I think, part of the woman-centered model. It's not me doing it to you or me doing it for you. It's us doing this together. Mm. And what's, how do I get your buy-in in it? Right. And if the patient isn't following the plan, like there are a lot of people out there that are labeled difficult patients. And I, I like to step away from that and say, okay, well, what does that mean when a doctor says someone's a difficult patient? It usually means they're not following the things that the doctor told them to do. It's like a difficult toddler or mm. teenager. You're not picking up your room when I told you to, why are you not doing that? And for me, it's like, okay, well, what about the plan isn't working for you if you're not able to follow it? Did I not explain it well? Is it too complicated? Is it too expensive? Are you feeling too unwell to cook for yourself? How do we, how do we shift that so that you can get lit up by this and get engaged? And And probably simply the fact that you're asking Mm. changes everything. I hope so. You know, I I mean, I've, I've seen that with different people that I've worked with where I would probably have labeled them difficult, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's an entrepreneur, whether it's somebody that come there, whether I'm consulting with somebody and, and they're, and like, you know, they're blowing up and that, and then you just like, you realize at a certain point that, um, for some people, 
they're never heard or seen at any other place in their lives. And what they're struggling so mightily is just to be seen, mm -hmm. just to be heard. Yeah. And a huge part of the process of like changing the experience for them of being a difficult person and for you of them, them being difficult is actually instead of trying to rush them out as fast as possible because they're difficult <laughs> pains in the asses and you don't want to be around them. Yeah. Which trust me, I've like it happens. I've been there and I've I've been on both sides of that equation. Yeah. Um you're like, okay, let me just hit reset on the way that I'm gonna move into this mm -hmm. engagement and let me just create space and listen and just like ask questions mm -hmm. and let them talk. And it, it, I found that there's like a magic that happens when you do that where it's just the fact that you're the only one in their lives that's actually shutting up and holding space and listening and mm -hmm. asking them questions that are reflecting the fact that you're actually listening and responding to them. It's powerful. That alone like makes a huge shift. And that person who's like the big, the difficult person mm -hmm. all of a sudden becomes somebody who's like, you, you know, you develop a really treasured relationship with. Absolutely. As soon as you just like unlock some yeah. wicked cool it's story so cool that's like, yeah, yeah it's, you know, like the person who was adopted at five and had this hard knocks yeah. life and you would never have known it. Or you know, recently I was talking with someone and this amazing woman and I found out she had had melanoma eight years ago and I'm like, oh, okay, that's where that little kernel of like life perspective comes from in this person who's kind of faced death, right? Like they faced the situation. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right, what the reward is, what's at the end, and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you wanna to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAST Creative.
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with Acast Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Like you, I think yeah. you love stories. I do. You love stories. I love yeah. them, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm always curious about, like, people's stories and their whys, which is... Yeah. So what was the kernel for you? What was that little kernel that lit you up? Um, in, in which... It, when? When I was younger? Right. Or? When you were younger, but also, like, in, with what you're doing now. Because you were clearly... You're sitting here and you're lit up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I I really love life, and um, I feel a lot of gratitude. It, maybe it just comes naturally. Sometimes I have to work at it. Sometimes I have to find the gratitude. Um, what is it? The kernel. Um, I think it's two things. One is have you ever have you ever heard Mary Oliver's poem? No. She's a she's an older woman. She's in her eighties. She's a, a beautiful poet. I'm going to get you one. Awesome. I'm going to get you some of her poems. But in one of her poems, she asks the question, so tell me, what is it you're going to do with your one wild and precious life? Mm. And I think about that, right? I've had a, a not too wild ride, but kind of a cool ride. And I do really feel like my life is precious. And I'm sort of a quintessential healer. Like I don't feel at rest in myself unless I'm engaged in service too. So I get to do what I love. Like I get to live a life where I'm nurturing and helping people. I get to be the doctor that I wanted to be. I get to be a writer and um, see people transform and see them get lit up. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe I have to think out loud, but I think it's seeing people get lit up and feeling like if there's one little bit of my wild and precious life that can take one little bit of suffering down a few notches for someone else, that, that really lights me up. And, and I get, and I'm geeked out about the stuff, so it's fun. Right. It's like, it's fun. Right, the science, really... dark side, and prong science, yeah, come on. It's yeah. just like this continuation exactly. of just like, clearly you have a massive love of learning and discovery. I and, do, uh, and I do. I have a lot of wonder, a lot of curiosity. I think that's a, a bit of it for me, too, is, yeah. you know, when I've got something going on with myself, if I'm like stressing out too much or down on myself, I, I try to get curious about it rather than judge it. Mm. And I try to get curious about other people rather than judge. And I think that's all. Okay, so which brings up a really interesting thing. And I've been having this conversation with a couple of people lately. It's around this idea of curiosity. Mm-hmm. 
Um, because I had, after, you know, we've been doing this for about two years now. And, and I'm always looking for sort of like common patterns and traits uh-huh. and words that people use all the time. Uh-huh. So people who are out there really shaking the world and doing big things and loving what they're doing, like what are the drivers behind that? And curiosity is, is very likely mm-hmm. the single biggest mm-hmm. common shared trait. But I hesitate to call it a trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I got really curious and I was having this <laughs> conversation with somebody recently and I was like, is curiosity trainable? Like, do you just have it or not have it? Mm-hmm. And if you have it, you're that person who devours knowledge and you want to learn and you just excel and fly and make yeah. a difference. Um, and if you don't have it, is it trainable? Like, can you teach curiosity? So I did a little bit of a deep dive, but in the early stages, but I have to do a lot more. What do you think? I'm a geek also. What do you think? And I came upon this one paper and um, from somebody who kind of broke it into two things. He, he defined it as state curiosity. Me, like, you're the person who just... From the time you were two, you wanted to know everything. Yeah. You were asking questions. You were the kid that wouldn't shut up because you were always me. asking questions. <laughs> right? And then there's, tra- there's trait curiosity, which is like you get curious about a very particular thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you're not just generally like curious about the world. It's right. like you go down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. in this one particular rabbit hole, um, which kind of helped me a little bit with the understanding of, but it still didn't really, you know, the still question for me is, can you train either of those? Mm. Um, and my, my sense is, that state curiosity, if, if in fact we accept that that is sort of like a dual existence there, it's, it's probably fairly difficult to train. But mm-hmm. trait curiosity, because the language you used was, you know, like, how do I talk to myself in a way to reframe it as how can I be curious about this mm-hmm. rather than something else? So it's almost like you're, mm-hmm. you're going through an, a, a mental process yes. to incite curiosity somewhere where your approach would have been something other than curiosity. Absolutely. Like I was one of those kids. I mean, I would literally have three projects going on at one time. Like my mom would say, even as a little tiny girl, like, I never just watched TV. I was watching TV and knitting or writing a book or mm-hmm. something. And I've, I was the kid who went around the neighborhood collecting rocks and got some goggles when I was like six and was cracking them open with a hammer. <laughs> I, I created an electromagnet in third grade. I was really curious about the world around mm-hmm. me. And at the same time, um, I make curiosity about the things that would sometimes be become obstacles. And I'm not always good at it. Sometimes they're just obstacles and I'm just whining and moaning like the nice person. But um, I do believe that curiosity is something that can be shared as a concept with someone who may just have not thought about it before. It's like people who haven't thought about what wellness means to them. Maybe they just never thought, oh, I can think about this a different way rather than seeing my labor pain as this horrible thing that's attacking me. I can get curious, like, hmm, what does that feel like? A lot of like what you did sounds like with the tinnitus. Yeah. Let me go into it right. rather than away from it because it's like the path yeah. of least resistance. You're going in, you're doing that deep dive, which I love that expression. I've been using that a lot lately. It really says a lot about how I'm kind of thinking about things or feeling about things. So it is one of the things I'll say to my patients actually or just people I'm working with in consulting and counseling is – okay, so like, there's a problem here. We can like look at it as a problem, right? Or we can get curious. Yeah. Or it's like math. You can say, oh my God, this is a problem or it's a puzzle. Is it a problem or is it a puzzle? So right. it's just a reframe. And I think that it's a habit, right? Like anything is a habit. If you try to reframe often enough, then it does sort of become a way of life. Yeah, and I like, I'm glad you brought up the term reframe because yeah. that is a huge, I think that's the tool. Mm. You know, that is, I think that's a tool that's 
Some people just have, some people don't have, but it's, it's an absolutely mm-hmm. teachable process. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you identify, like, here's the circumstance. Maybe I can change it, maybe I can't. But I'm telling a story and asking a certain, I'm asking certain questions and telling a certain mm-hmm. story and giving certain answers about this circumstance. Are there other questions? Are there other stories that I can tell? Are there other answers mm-hmm. that I can pull out of it? Mm-hmm. That process, outside of like the world of therapy, which uses it on a, on a regular and highly effective yeah, maybe basis. maybe art. Right, maybe art. Yeah. But like in, out there in the common world, especially in, it's funny because I operate a lot in the world of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and business, it's not taught. Mm-hmm. It's just not taught. And it is such a massively important process, especially um, in spaces of innovation and stuff like this, where mm-hmm. you've got like constant things which are going to rock you mm-hmm. and throw you back. And if you don't learn to reframe and ask the questions that allow you to see the possibility, not just the disruption, but mm-hmm. disruption and then, okay, what's the possibility yeah. behind the disruption? Mm-hmm. You're dead in the water. But I think it's a, it's a bigger life skill also. So it's I'm glad you just made the link between, between reframing and curiosity because mm-hmm. that's, I guess that's sort of like one of the big tools. Yeah. We could talk for a long time about this. I know we can. It's fun. <laughs> it's not taught in medicine either. And I think this is one of the shifts that functional medicine has the potential to make mm. in the way medicine is practiced in, um, you know, there's naturopathy, there's herbal medicine, there are acupuncture, there are a lot of different modalities out there that are really great. Mm-hmm. Medicine, uh, conventional medicine, is so fixed in its mindset, right? This is how we do it. It's always been done this way. And if we can prove in a study that's good enough, that also sort of reflects our belief system and reinforces our belief system. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe we'll make a change. And the, one of the beauties about functional medicine is that it's a language that is recognizable to conventional physicians. It, it, it's a biomedical language. It allows for spirituality. It ev- allows for personal growth. That's all part of it. That should be part of good medicine too. But I'm kind of excited about this little bit of a Trojan horse possibility. Like, ah, on the surface, it's a gift. And it is a gift. Yeah. Um, but it may start to allow a reframe. And I, But until conventional medicine as a system allows itself to get curious, mm. then it's sort of fixed in its own problems right and there's a lot of problems so i'm hoping that that as a system like can a system get curious yeah you know can a system shift that's a fascinating question my my and obviously you're so much more tapped into this than i am but from so i'm on the opposite i'm on the consumer side yeah <laughs> right yeah. Um, and i talk to a lot of consumers um and uh my sense is that um that there is such a vast and gr- and deep and growing increase in curiosity among the general population mm-hmm. about alternative approaches Absolutely. that that may be the thing that then sort of like reverse engineers it's going to be more of a groundswell mm-hmm. from the the patient who's driving like the demand for a different approach a yeah. more curious approach up through um, the practitioner. Absolutely, and it's so funny, I was talking to my husband recently and I used that term reverse engineering, like how do we reverse engineer? How do we say, okay, well, what's, it, to me when I think about it, it's like, okay, well, what's the goal? <clears throat> what are the actions that are required to get to that goal? And then what's the mindset or the spiritual approach or the emotional space that allows you to either meet those actions to shape the goal or gets in the way of it? Mm-hmm. and. If the goal of medicine is really to serve and heal, it's, that's not what most people are finding right now. Mm. My wish is that medicine would switch, shift because of curiosity and reverse engineering. I think that the shift is going to come because conventional medicine recognizes that the alternative world is just an absolute cash cow. And 
the medicine as an industry because it's it's really not healthcare. It's a medical industry in right. truth. And I say that as someone trained in it, like, yeah. what's the bottom line? How do we get the most patients in? How do we get people out of the hospital quick enough to turn beds over? Like we, we used to be given these little cash incentives to get patients out fast enough in the morning. No kidding. Wow. To, yeah. And huh. so you'd end up with these high rates of patients coming back in sicker because they got sent home too early. Right, yeah. It's a big problem. Um, but so there's a lot of financial incentive and there's a lot of financial boon happening in the alternative world. So that partly may be what shift things, shifts things. Also, I think as human beings, like we really, most of us, I think if we're pretty healthy, like connection. Mm. And most people that went into medicine went in with some altruistic intent. And then when they come out, that altruism is largely lost. This is really well documented, actually. Mm. And then people go along their lives, and at some point they either just sort of become what they didn't want to become, right. or they realize that what they've become is out of harmony with their authenticity and their integrity, and they get really unhappy with what they're doing, and then they start looking for something different. Mm. And so many doctors are so unhappy. Like 90% of family or primary care doctors surveyed recently said they would encourage their kids not to go into medicine. Really? Wow, yeah. that's a huge statement. So I think if people get... That's, that's so sad. Yeah, because they're feeling like they're paper pushing all the time and they've got right. seven minutes and it's not like they can just... It's not, it's not nourishing to them. They go home unsatisfied. And so I'm hoping it's the relational piece that yeah. gets people curious. Yeah, mm. yeah. it was so fascinating. I, I mean, I'm kind of... Um, I'm excited for what, what appears to be tremendous amount of grassroots disruption yeah um, in, there's shifts in the, happening in the industry and yeah i think if we're, if we're having this conversation again in 10 years hopefully we will yeah you know reflecting back i think it's going to be just really fascinating to see how things evolve totally because it seems like the pace of change is picking up a it's lot huge. too i'm really i think that's another piece for me i'm hugely encouraged like actually would we even really have this conversation 10 years ago yeah. right things were so fringe back then and now it's like Walmart's talking about having organics it's, mm -hmm. it's I mean I know there's politics there but it's exciting to think that this is becoming a household kind of concept right getting well is becoming thriving mm -hmm. even not just getting well but thriving is becoming yeah. more of a goal and across the spectrum I mean there's medicine there's like the, the world of positive psychology yes didn't exist not too long ago no. you know until Martin Seligman like stands right. up and says like the cake is half baked and we're going to bake the other half yeah um yeah, so I think it's, there's all this convergence going on, you know, mm -hmm. where it's it's not about the lack of disease or the lack of illness. So like, that's part of it for mm -hmm. sure. But, like, we don't just leave people there. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, now let's take them from baseline to plus 100 mm -hmm. and figure out and how to I, do it. I'd love to see the shift kind of meet in the middle and that there is this tremendous shift of consciousness happening. And then it's also, it's easy to... Um, forget that we have a higher rate of diabetes and obesity than ever even with the shifting we have a higher c-section rate than ever we have like one of the worst infant mortality rates in the world it's like mm. so how do we and so much of that happens at socioeconomic groups that aren't accessing some of the shifts that some of us are really much more easily able to make and so how do we make it global right how do mm. we get get healthcare? shifted so that it's thinking about everyone getting this not just people who can pay out of pocket yeah that's exciting to me too yeah that would be tremendous yeah, you know, yeah. equal access to the, the level of care 
mm-hmm. that these days not a lot of people can yeah. actually get. Yeah. And I think one of the things I realized too is that um, there's so much talk about improvements in healthcare, but it's almost like give it for conventional medicine, like how do we give more people more access? But if it's more access to answers to the wrong questions. Right. Exactly. Who needs it? Like what? More people are going to get diabetes medications that they don't need. More yeah. people are going to get statins that they don't need that cause diabetes. And, yeah. um, you know, more kids are going to get medications they don't need for diagnoses that don't have when it's just really a system not supporting them. So it's so funny because there's so many business analogies. Like when, <laughs> um, I, I, I've had clients come to me and they're like, okay, we want to hire you to market. We need you like bring in as many people as you can. I'm like, okay, but let's actually look at like, what's your business. And then like, I'll, I'll look at what their model and they're like, okay, they have a box where for every dollar that's coming in, they're making 90 cents. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would you want to put more dollars in that box? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like a similar thing. First fix exactly. the box. Yes. Like first fix the box. And now let's, then let's drive as many people into that thing, yeah. which is putting out more than it's taking in, you know, like then bring it on. And now I'm all about like, okay, let's just get out of that box and let's build a geodesic yeah, totally dome. Totally different. <laughs> let's yeah. build something different. Break it, shatter it. Yeah. I mean, Very there's cool. importance, there's importance to what exists, but I, I don't know that we need to fix that model. I think this is what we're doing. We're creating something new. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of like Bucky Fullminster. He's like, just build totally. something bigger yep, around yep. it and let the other thing go where it needs to go. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. interesting. The name of this project is The Good Life Project. Mm. Um, what I offer that term out to you to live a good life? What does it mean? Mm. So, I think for me, if I am living a really good life, I'm able to be really present. And being present helps me live a really good life. And what I mean by that is, if my life is good, or if I'm creating a good life, I can be where I am in the moment because I'm not distracted by worries, I'm not distracted by the next thing I have to do. And so I can really be here right now with you, or I can be right there with my partner, or right there with my kids, or right there with my patients. And I think if I'm doing that, then hopefully, the person I'm in that relationship with in that moment feels that I've cared. And I think a good life for me, if I were to get to the end of my life and say, did I live a good life? I would hope people would say, wow, she really cared. Like I really felt like she was there with me. And, and in that encompasses just big love, you know, big hearted love, listening, compassion, right? Cause if I'm present, I'm able to, kind of do all that um yeah so i think that's that's probably what it is presence mm-hmm. yeah awesome yeah thank you so much thank so you give you a hug of course <laughs> thank mm-hmm. you thanks for gathering stories and sharing oh, them it's, it's a beautiful pleasure. thing i'm jonathan fields my guest today has been aviva ram awesome functional medicine doc and cool human being <laughs> signing off for good life project